Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, fill this place. We praise you, God. Lord God, we glorify your name, your name which is spoken and present in power through the words of sacred scripture. We pray tonight, Lord, that these words would speak to us with power, that would move in our hearts, work in us, um, and help us, Lord, to be attentive and receptive to whatever message you have in store for us tonight. Guide us as we dive into your word. Remove from us any distractions, worries, anxieties, doubts, struggles, any ways in which we're feeling isolated or alone, especially disconnected from you, Lord. And we just pray that you would um, make yourself known to us tonight in our conversation, our reflection, our prayer. We lay this time at your feet. We ask that you would bless us each in the ways that we most need it and bless this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Once again, we are in Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the fifth Sunday in Ordinary Time. And we're picking up right where we left off in the gospel of Mark. So this is the very first day of Jesus's public ministry. He has called his first disciples. He has driven out a demon on the Sabbath in the the synagogue in Capernaum. And as soon as he leaves, these are the events that take place in that, the rest of that day and the following day. So we'll start in Mark chapter 1, verses 29, verse 29, and we'll read through 39. First time through, just get a picture for what is being said. So remember, Jesus has just driven out a demon in the synagogue, and this is what takes place. On leaving the synagogue, Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. They immediately told him about her. He approached, grasped her hand, and helped her up. Then the fever left her, and she waited on them. When it was evening, after sunset, they brought to him all who were ill or possessed by demons. The whole town was gathered to him, all who were ill or possessed by demons. Oh, sorry, the whole whole town was gathered at the door. He cured many who were sick with various diseases. And he drove out many demons, not permitting them to speak, because they knew him. Rising very early before dawn, he left and went off to a deserted place where he prayed. Simon and those who were with him pursued him, and on finding Jesus said, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus told them, Let us go on to the nearby villages, that I may preach there also. For this purpose have I come. So he went into their synagogues, preaching and driving out demons throughout the whole of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we have Jesus healing Simon's mother-in-law, some other healings the, uh, immediately after sunset, which is technically the next day, no longer on the Sabbath, and then Jesus going to a secluded place to pray. As we read this a second time, now that you have a picture for the events that are happening and the scene in your mind, pay attention to the words as they are read. Focus only on the words and particularly what words or details are resonating with you, maybe uh, sparking something in your own mind. It doesn't have to be to theologically interpret the verse this time around, but just speaks to you personally in some way. Reflect on those details, those words, and ask the Lord, what are you trying to say to me? Why is this standing out? the second and final time through. Mark chapter 1, verse 29. On leaving the synagogue, Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. 
Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. They immediately told him about her. He approached, grasped her hand, and helped her up. Then the fever left her, and she waited on them. When it was evening after sunset, they brought to Jesus all who were ill or possessed by demons. The whole town was gathered at the door. He cured many who were sick with various diseases, and he drove out many demons, not permitting them to speak because they knew him. Rising very early before dawn, Jesus left and went off to a deserted place where he prayed. Simon and those who were with him pursued him, and on finding him said, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus told them, Let us go on to the nearby villages that I may preach there also. For this purpose have I come. So he went into their synagogues preaching and driving out demons throughout the whole of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we've read through this twice, I invite you to take a few moments to look back over it, especially the things that stood out to you. Reflect on them, begin to ask why, and then take about the next 10 or 15 minutes to share at your tables uh, what stood out to you and why, what questions do you have about this passage, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for some teaching and Q&A. If you're watching or listening to this later, please let us know what stood out to you in the comments, but for those of us here, we'll take about the next 10 or 15 minutes. All right. So a few things as always. Um, pay attention again to, as we read this uh, and, and reflect on this, where this is in the Gospel of Mark. It's in the very beginning. Jesus just called his apostles, or his, the first of his disciples. And remember the first things that he does. Okay, this is Mark. He's trying to depict Jesus in a certain way and show that Jesus is divine and he has a divine authority to be victorious over sin and death. But notice the things that Jesus does. Very, very first day of his ministry, he preaches, he drives out demons, and he heals. He preaches, he drives out demons, and he heals. He's concerned for the mind, preaching to tell us the truth, healing the body, restoring the body, and driving out demons, the soul, restoring our soul. From the very first page of Jesus' public ministry, Mark is trying to communicate that Jesus is God and has authority over mind, body, and soul and can restore mind, body, and soul to the condition that they were created to be in, at least the closest to that that you can get to in this life. And so from the very first page, he's being very clear about the power that Jesus has and his mission to restore people completely. You will see in this passage and in many others, a lot of people come to Jesus, and we do this too, a lot of people come to Jesus asking for only one of those things. Jesus, I want you to cure me. But we're not yet willing to hear the truth. We're not yet willing to maybe let go of some of our spiritual attachments that prevent us from being deeper in relationship with the Lord. Notice in this, there's no mention of if they had faith or not, like there is elsewhere in the gospel. That just from the beginning, Mark wants to show, yes, Jesus has the authority to do this, but it doesn't mean it took the full effect that it could have, as you see later on in the gospel, as word begins to spread and people begin to treat Jesus not just like a healer or someone who puts out on magic tricks for them to go be entertained, but someone who really is the Messiah, the divine son of God, who can really restore all of who they are. And they start to demonstrate faith. Do people start to be healed in more ways than one? And that, to me, is a really important thing to reflect on for us as we look over this passage. Am I allowing and inviting Christ into my mind, my body, and my soul to heal me completely and, and not just asking for one part of him or for him to come into one part of my life? Because if I do that, I'm missing, I'm missing in some way the power that Christ can have in me, over me, through me, if I'm not asking for all of it. Mark is, wants to be very clear in the very first chapter, this is who Jesus is. And he's coming to heal your mind, heal your body, and heal your soul. And over and over again, you'll see examples in this gospel of people who come for one or the other, but not all of them. And that's why a lot of people flock to Jesus. A lot of people come for healing or for demons to be driven out. But not a lot of them become disciples. In Acts chapter 1, how many disciples are there when Jesus ascends into heaven? 120. After three years. 120, including the 12. That's it. That's all. Thousands came. Thousands came. But in Acts chapter 1, it says there were 120 disciples gathered there. 
Well, hold on. Let me keep doing context. Then I'll ask your questions. Sorry, I got excited. Um, so, mind, body, and soul. It's important for that just in the context of Mark. I wanted to point that out. So he comes, he's preaching, he's healing, and he's giving exorcism. You could also understand those things through the, the lens of uh, faith. Faith in, in, uh, in the mind, coming to know the truth, believing and submitting ourselves to the Lord, having hope in our bodily lives that there is a resurrection in the dead, and then charity in our soul, thinking of the three theological virtues in that way. There's also ways in which God is defined in Scripture, that God is light, that he is life, and that he is love. And you can understand the way that Jesus comes through those three lenses as well, that he comes to shed light, that he comes to give us life, bodily life, and eternal life. And then he comes to show us that God is love and let that love dwell in our soul. So all of those things are kind of very present here. If you read this throughout the context of all of scripture, very kind of cool how, how Mark paints all that on the very first page. So I want to point that out. Um, a couple things about this passage that I think are, are noteworthy. We talked last week a little bit about the Sabbath and how the Sabbath, it was forbidden to do any kind of, of uh, difficult labor or work. In fact, I found a passage from Jeremiah chapter 17 uh, and this is about the observance of the Sabbath and that Jeremiah is proclaiming that Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah at this time, is going to be punished. They're going to go off into exile if they don't turn away from their idolatrous ways and if they don't uh, return to honoring the Sabbath. So the Lord speaks through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 22. And he says, bring no burden from your homes on the Sabbath. Doesn't that sound exactly like what people are doing to Jesus on the Sabbath? bringing all their burdens to Jesus on the Sabbath. Well, at least Simon and Andrew and James and John are. I'll make the distinction that the, when they come to him in the evening, it is no longer the Sabbath because it's the next day. Notice how they wait. They still want to go see who Jesus is, but they're not willing to yet let go of this idea that they can't violate the Sabbath, even if it's for something good. They're still very regimented in the way they're following the law. Okay, This continues. Um, do no work whatever, but keep holy the Sabbath day as I commanded your ancestors. Though they did not listen or give ear, but stiffened their necks so they could not hear or take correction. If you truly obey me and carry no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath day holy and abstaining from all work on it, then through the gates of the city, kings who sit upon the throne of David will continue to enter riding in their chariots or upon their horses, along with their princes, and the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the city will remain inhabited forever. And I find this passage very interesting because Jeremiah is preaching something that sounds very good. And in one sense, he's saying, if you keep holy the Sabbath, then you're going to continue to have this great kingdom. And in one sense, that would have been true at that time. They would have persisted they would have continued to be faithful to the Lord. The Lord would have continued to allow this kingdom that they had built to grow under King Saul and King David and King Solomon. But in another way, it becomes a prophecy about the future. And that if they hold so rigidly to the Sabbath, and they don't, in a sense, they're not violating it, but if they don't see what Jesus is doing and come to him on the Sabbath, then kings will continue to enter Jerusalem. And later on, that's not a good thing, is it? Kings entering on their horses and their chariots, oppressing them like the people in Rome. And when Jesus enters Jerusalem, does he, does, it, does he do it on a chariot or with horses? No, he comes humbly on a donkey. Not as a warrior coming to ride into battle, but as someone who is coming as a servant. And so it's interesting that this is one of the few passages or prophecies in the Old Testament that is fulfilled immediately and in the future, but almost in opposite ways. It's very, very interesting. So that's in Jeremiah 17. Um, but that gives you also a picture for how seriously they took the Sabbath. And that goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 and all the Sabbath laws that then come after that in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. So there's so many things you couldn't do on the Sabbath. You couldn't knead a dough. You couldn't make clay. You couldn't walk more than 22,000 uh, square feet from your front door. All of that had to be measured. You had to know how far you could walk. Uh, all of those things to refrain from labor. And they lost sight of the fact that this was meant to be, we're meant to devote this time to prayer, to family, to the Lord. And it became, am I walking 1,999 feet or 2,000 feet? Am I in violation or am I not? And it became about obsession about, is this right or is this wrong? And they lost sight of the Sabbath. And you can see how that keeps people from coming to Jesus on the Sabbath until the sun goes down. And why often when he does things on the Sabbath that are definitely good, no one would argue that it's a bad thing to be driving out demons. And yet they criticize Jesus for lifting a finger on the Sabbath. 
So that's kind of the context of the Sabbath. Uh, Another thing about hospitality. It's interesting here that when Jesus enters the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John, and he heals uh, Simon's mother-in-law, it says immediately that she waited on them. And there's something here because there, when you entered someone's house, like radical hospitality at this time was considered like a cultural expectation. And so if a foreigner entered your house in your village and you did not show him hospitality, then you brought dishonor not only upon your house, but upon that entire village. And there were considered spiritual ramifications for that, that you would be punished for not doing that because there was an expectation that you were going to encounter the Lord in the stranger. Think about in Genesis when Abraham is sitting by the Oak of Mamre and he sees the three strangers and he runs into Sarah and says, quick, make some food. And they pronounce that they, even though they're barren, are going to be with child. There's an expectation that the divine is going to manifest when you welcome the stranger with hospitality. And so think of the shame and the burden on Simon's mother-in-law when she couldn't do that. When she was unable to extend that hospitality to someone she would soon find out was the Messiah, the Son of God. Imagine just the kind of the cultural pressure and expectation upon her that she couldn't meet that need. And so what does Jesus do? He doesn't just cure her. He heals her in such a way that she's able to do away with her guilt or her shame at not being able to meet that expectation. Again, another example of Jesus healing the whole person, restoring a person to the place in which they desire to be or where they belong, and not just simply curing them, not just simply telling them the truth, but healing all of who they are. Something about uh, uh, the touch aspect. Jesus here, he grasps her by the hand. Uh, Jews had a lot of laws about ritual purity and what they could touch, what they could not touch. And if they touched something that was impure um, or, or unclean, they were now considered also impure or unclean, and they could not come to the temple for worship. They could not make sacrifices. They had to go uh, stay outside of the camp, outside of their home for a certain amount of time, had to wash themselves in a certain way, then offer certain sacrifices to become ritually pure again. Now, this wasn't um, any kind of moral judgment against the person. Most of these things had to do with if there was a sense that life was leaving the body. If you came into contact with blood, bodily fluids, Anything like that, if you entered into the marital act with your spouse, even you were considered ritually impure because some kind of life had left you. And so you had to wait in which you were, until the time you were purified overnight or the next day or sometimes a week, depending on the situation, before you could come forward uh, to worship again in the temple. So it wasn't that you had done something wrong. It was an acknowledgement that you had in some way touched death or lost some kind of life. So if you touched a leper, it wasn't because that's a bad, immoral thing to touch a leper. It was because there's something about the decaying life of the leper that you now touch to decay, and you cannot come forward to God and worship if you are decaying. You need to be in a right position with the Lord and as purified as possible to come before him. But Jesus is not afraid to touch. He's he's totally fine touching people going to places where people are completely afraid. Because Jesus cannot be impure or made unclean by any of us. In any other situation, it doesn't matter if you were the high priest, if you were the holiest position at the time, if you touched a leper, you were unclean. Because that decay spread to you in some way. But when Jesus touches a leper, he is so clean that he makes others clean. The divine is able to give life and not be affected by the fact that life is lost or life is being taken away. So a lot of the times when you read about ritual impurity or you see people not touching or shouting that there's a leper staying away, it's because of those ritual acts of impurity that would bar them from worship, bar them from being able to sleep in their home or sleep in the village that night. But Jesus is not afraid to go where others do not want to go. And I think that's an important thing to remember for all of us. And then lastly, this uh, aspect of Jesus going away to pray in the desert. There's a lot that could be said about that. Um, But just practically speaking or geographically speaking, there is no desert around Capernaum. So he didn't actually go to a desert. He went to a deserted place representative of, it uses the same word, eremos in uh, in Greek, which means the wilderness, the place of uh, testing, the place of wandering in the Old Testament where the the Israelites wandered for 40 years to encounter God and to unlearn all of the ways of idolatry and paganism that they took on in Egypt so that they could become more devoted and consecrated to the Lord. 
So the wilderness, the desert, the deserted place were all symbolic of places of encounter, places of testing, places, yes, that might be dangerous because the devil himself dwells in the desert. We see that's where Jesus is tempted, but also places of deep connection with the Lord where you can be transformed or undergo some type of transformation, just like the Israelites did in the desert, passing through the Red Sea and then entering the promised land. So all of those things, when you were to read this again in the first century, you would know that about Sabbath, you would know that about hospitality, you would know that about ritual purity, and you would see Jesus going to a deserted place, and you'd probably be reminded of Moses and the Israelites in the desert, and, uh, and us now reading, also knowing about Jesus being tempted in the desert, the types of things that the desert was symbolic of. So hopefully that gives you a little more context. Uh, that being said, what are some things that stood out to you? What questions do you have about this passage? Matt. So you mentioned the, the ritual impurity. So I'm just thinking about the Old Testament, how there's a lot of that. And one is like, does Jesus acknowledge the, those ritual impurities even though he knows about it? And then I'm wondering how he had like his New Covenant or just the New Testament fulfills those ritual impurities. I think of like, you know, the practices that we do about like fasting before Mass and yeah. confession and things like that. Sure. So does Jesus acknowledge the ritual impurities and how are they kind of realized in the New Covenant of the Mass and what Jesus establishes? Um, so we never see anywhere in Scripture Jesus cleansing himself ritually because he's impure, because he can't be impure. He can't be unclean. So even though he must have known it, he never has to observe it. The only time we see this happen associated with Jesus is when he is presented in the temple. And it's his mother and father, especially his mother, Mary, who goes to the temple to present a sacrifice for her purification. That is what is said. Because if you gave birth, you had a loss of life. A loss of, there's a lot of loss of water and blood, and that was one of the prescriptions for restoring yourself to ritual, ritual purity. Um, life left you in some way. Life literally came out of you. So you need to undergo some type of action to uh, purify yourself and restore yourself to kind of full level health, kind of the analogy I used last week of the video game, um, that you lose a little bit, you got to gain it back. So it's the only time we see that happen even associated with Jesus, but it's not about Jesus, it's about Mary when that happens. So it's clear that he was aware of it, his family was aware of it, they were faithful to it. It was never necessary for him because he couldn't be made impure, he couldn't be made unclean. As for how is that realized for us now, well, we don't need to worry about ritual impurity because we don't have the temple anymore. Uh, we don't commit perpetual sacrifice anymore because Jesus dying on the cross is the once and for all sacrifice that we represent every time we go to Mass. So every time we celebrate Mass, we're not re-sacrificing Jesus on the cross. We are representing the once and for all sacrifice that Jesus made for us. It's like we're traveling back in time to that moment and worshiping God in thanksgiving for what Jesus did for us and remembering that we have been saved. However, we do adopt certain, let's say, disciplinary or sacrificial practices to help purify us in our state of mind or our desire, um, renewed spiritual disciplines, so that that can be more deeply realized or believed by us. So things like fasting, things like prayer, scripture, um, spiritual direction, silence, all those things can help purify us, but they're not prescribed as absolutely necessary in order for you to come forward um, to receive the sacrifice. The thing that is necessary is you can't be in a state of serious sin. So probably the, more, the most modern equivalent of that would be confession. That we are in a state of ritual impurity, in a sense, in our soul, if we have very serious sin on our soul. If you have minor sin on your soul, you don't have to go to confession before you receive communion. You can. But it's only that serious sin that separates us from God so severely that we have to reconcile with him before we can come to him in the Mass, because the Mass is like you're walking down the aisle like a wedding to commit to, to Jesus once again, and you can't do that if there's a separation there. So in one sense, reconciliation is sort of like um, the ritual purification that we have now. Jared. Um, if Jews eat bacon, I guess I can still do it, do they have to do any ritualistic things like blood? Yes, yeah, so uh, Jews can't eat pork. So the question is, if Jews eat bacon, do they have to, or pork, if they violate the food laws, do they have to do any kind of ritual purity uh, or rich, like ritual ceremonial washing or something like that? Um, I don't recall off the top of my head what the prescription is for violating a food law, but there is, you would, it would be customary to make some kind of purification offering. So it would just probably be a sacrifice 
that you would bring to the temple, uh, and that's all prescribed in Leviticus. If you want to learn about the sacrifices, just read like the first six chapters of Leviticus. There's like you'll be so tired of all of the. It's like fry the kidneys on the grill. You know, it's like very specific about what you do to the animal. You bring flour, you pour oil on it, you offer that. It's very very specific. So they all knew that. Uh, when you came to, I've told you all about synagogue school many times. Uh, when you were young, five years old, you came to synagogue school, boys and girls. The very first book that they learned was Leviticus because it had all of the laws about how you operate as a sacrificial worshiping people who go to the temple. That's the first thing you need to know. This is how we worship God. And then you learn the context that that was created in by reading Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, etc. Um, but that's the first book they study, which has all the priestly laws. Richard. You know, over the course of this last several weeks, there sure seems to be a lot of demonic possessions during the time of Jesus. Yes. Now, go to, to today. Mm -hmm. Are just as many today, or did, did Jesus coming and, and sacrificing himself, mm. you know, less than that amount? Yeah, so are there more demon there's a lot of demonic possessions, it seems. First chapter so far, a lot. A lot of people coming forward for demons, yeah all through it. So are there as many today? Uh, it's impossible to know that, obviously. Um, but I would say it's, uh, it, first of all, I'll make two points. The first point is that the one lie that the devil wants us to believe is that he is not real. That he's not working in the world, that he's not a big deal, that he doesn't exist. That's something that the devil very much wants us to believe. And so when you bring up the devil or heaven and hell, a lot of people in secular culture will treat it like a mythic fairy tale. Like, oh, you don't believe in that stuff. You don't believe there's some big scary boogeyman out there to send you to hell if you don't do the right things. That's the church trying to repress you and get you to obey their rules. That's what they believe. And the devil's very, very happy with many people believing that because people are completely ignorant to the fact that they need to protect, himself, uh, protect themselves against his work. However, Jesus died on the cross for us and instituted primarily the ministry of baptism and the ministry of exorcism. Previous to Jesus, remember I only mentioned there's only one mention of something akin to someone driving out spirits in the Old Testament, and that was in 1 Samuel when David would play music for Saul. A evil spirit that was afflicting Saul, would he would feel as though it left him because the music that David would play was pleasing to him. That's the only kind of equivalent we have. So when Jesus comes, he charges the apostles with a specific authority to drive out demons that did not exist before. So because the church now has that authority, which exists in all of the priesthood, the bishops namely and who they delegate it to, and because we have the salvific power of baptism that cleanses us of original sin, and at every baptism there is an exorcism said, that means that it is far less likely that the, the level of demonic uh, influence or possession that was as prevalent at this time would, would statistically speaking, be as prevalent now. Um, however, only a third of the world is Christian, and they probably identify that way because at some point they were baptized. So it's two-thirds of the world that still could be exposed to this, and the population of that is probably higher than the entire population of the world 2,000 years ago. So you could go either way. You could say, like, there, there were less tools against the enemy at the time, so it could have been more prolific in that sense. We have more tools now, but we also have more people now. And the devil is just as much at work as he is now than he was then. Yes, yeah. One more question. Yes, please. When did Jesus realize that he was God? What was that? Uh, yes. This is a question of frivolous theological debate. There is no official church teaching on it. When did Jesus realize that he was the son of God is the question. Um, the conservative theological answer is that he would have come to full knowledge or awareness that uh, of his divinity by the time he, sometime between when he was of the age of reason, which is around seven years old, uh, up to the time where he is 12 and he's found in the temple. Because it's clear at that point from reading the text, he knows who he is and at least what he's meant to be doing there. So at some point during those times, he would have had a full realization of who he was. But that wouldn't be fully realized in his mission until he turned 30 and became a rabbi. So just like we learn anything in, in, as humans, and Jesus had a fully human nature, 
this would have probably evolved his understanding. This is Matt speaking, not the church speaking. Um, his understanding of himself, I believe, would have evolved over time as he grew, because you can only understand so much when you're a baby. You know, so we don't believe that Jesus came out and was like, I am the son of God. He was like, he was a baby. He couldn't talk yet. So like his brain had to develop. He had to understand just like we all do. But at some point, the age of reason is the age, uh, it's, it's set at seven now, uh, but it's the age which, in which the church determines at this point, the person kind of knows right from wrong and can make decisions for themselves and has an awareness uh, that's great enough for them to be able to choose uh, the sacramental life for themselves. So if a, if a person is above the age of seven and they want to convert to Catholicism or their family wants to convert to Catholicism, we have to treat them as if they're an adult. They have to go through the same rites, the same liturgies. Now we form them and teach them at their age level, but they have to go through the same process as an adult does. Um, so that at some point, theologically speaking, it's likely to, it's, it's reasonable for us to assume that some point between those ages of seven and 12, if there was a moment where it all kind of boom downloaded. Um, I think it probably was a slow evolutionary process that he had a, a realization of who he was when he was 12, but that probably even enriched throughout time going forward after that as he grew up and learned more. So, um, yeah, there's no official stance on it. But most of the church, you'll see in a lot of articles about that, they'll mention the age of reason and that moment when he's found in the temple when he's 12. Yeah. Other questions, things that stood out to you? Yes. Uh, in verse 38, when he says, uh, let's go to other towns uh, mm -hmm. so I can preach, and that was, that was the purpose for which I came. Uh, was it, it seems to me like he wasn't explaining his whole mission there. Like, mm -hmm. we, we touched on that at the beginning, like, the soul, mind, and the body, I forget what he's saying. Yeah. But it was in his whole mission to be, uh, to reconcile Israel back to God and to be the ultimate sacrifice to free the world, you say? Yeah, so the question is in verse 38 about, it's clear Jesus is kind of speaking there to his mission. Wasn't his mission to reconcile Israel with God? What is that kind of speaking to? Uh, yes, like salvation was prophesied all throughout scripture to come through the Hebrew people and that the Messiah would come eventually, as we learn in the prophets, from the tribe of Judah, born in the town of Bethlehem, all these very specific prophecies that Jesus fulfills. And so often he does go to those Jewish places, like the synagogue, to the rabbis, the Pharisees, uh, to dialogue with them and try and reveal the truth of who he is. The problem is they're so stubborn or unwilling to see the truth that they see him as an enemy. Um, but ultimately, we believe that salvation did come through the Jews because Jesus was Jewish and salvation was offered to them and then offered to the entire world after that. Um, so, but here he's speaking to his mission in the sense that um, he didn't just come for this one place, this one town. Um, Jesus is not concerned with success in the sense that we are, right? It would have been very, if this were, if the, I would gather to say, if this were any of us, but I'll admit, if this were me, and I suddenly had this ability to heal and drive out demons and people were coming to me, I'd probably like, all right, I'll just set up shop here and, you know, Matt's healings and exorcisms and we'll create an Instagram account and we'll monetize it and, you know, I'll be set for life. You know, that'd probably be a very big temptation in my mind to be like, this is very easy. Jesus is not concerned with success. He's concerned with salvation. He's concerned with his mission. He's concerned with being faithful to the, to the Lord. I think there's a quote from Mother Teresa that's similar to that, that the Lord does not call you to be successful, he calls you to be faithful. And so Jesus is not willing to get comfortable or rest on his laurels or forget the fact that he came not just to save one town or to reveal that he's the Messiah, which he very well could have done, and he could have gained such a following, following in Galilee, the Pharisees could have come up, realized he was a problem, arrested him, brought him back down and crucified him, and he all could have happened just because of the ministry he did in Capernaum. But he chooses to continue to travel, to continue to spread his ministry, spread the good news, gain disciples, so that they'll go out eventually and make more disciples. He's very intentional in his mission. He doesn't care for earthly success. Uh, and I think those verses, and even the verses where you, um, like the verse that's here, and usually he says this to his disciples or to people, but he says this to demons, and not permitting them to speak because they knew him. This speaks to, in Mark and in some of the other gospels, this uh, uh, concept of the, the messianic secret. That Jesus seems to be telling people to hush up about who he is. 
And again, that would go against probably everything that we think would be necessary. Like, tell people. You're the Messiah. People have been waiting for you forever. Don't you want people to know who you are? Don't you want people to be saved? But Jesus has a mission. He knows what it is, and he has a specific way in which he wants to get there. He doesn't want it to happen too soon or too late. He doesn't want to be in conflict with the Pharisees on day one. He wants to have enough time to minister, to establish the church, to give his apostles authority, to choose them and to send them out so that he not only could come and reveal that he was the Messiah, but the church he intended to found would be found. The new priesthood founded not on 12 tribes of Israel with Levites, priests, and the high priest, but now 12 apostles with deacons, priests, and bishops would now be founded to go out and to spread the good news all over the world. He wanted to do that intentionally, and that took time. So he couldn't stay in one place. He couldn't be satisfied with that. He just, he kept going. Yeah. Yes. So, so we had a question that you just mentioned. So when would uh, the Pharisees have gotten hit to this, this guy saying all this stuff? Certainly not on day one. Um, well, uh, when would the Pharisees have gotten knowledge of Jesus? In John, I believe it's in John, the Pharisees are there when he's baptized. I believe. I think some of them witnessed the fact that, um, that the skies open up. And they hear God saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Uh, and the Pharisees were already well aware of John the Baptist out there. Herod the Great was already well aware of John the Baptist. And so there was already movement and tension and an awareness of people preaching things different than the status quo of the Pharisees. And so I think they would have been very heightened to that. I think that's part of the reason why John the Baptist making the way for Jesus was so necessary. Because... Things were just kind of status quo. You needed some kind of fringe, crazy-looking dude like John the Baptist to get everyone really freaked out and worked up by doing these crazy things out in the middle of nowhere to get the Pharisees heightened to then when they encounter Jesus, who's very approachable and seems very reasonable to believe that, like, this guy has authority. He's smart. We can't trick him. We can't entrap him in speech. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe part of the reason they weren't willing to realize that is because their tensions had been risen so high by someone like John the Baptist that they weren't willing to kind of be calm and accept that Jesus might be who he, he said he was. Again, all part of the very um, particular mission of Jesus and how crafted this plan of salvation was. Um, so I think the Pharisees were probably aware right from the beginning, according to John, but they became more aware and more, um, what's the word? Um, concerned and obstinate against Jesus as the ministry progressed. Uh, and that depends also on the chronological way you read the Gospels. In John, it happens very early. Remember, in John, it's chapter 2 where Jesus flips over the tables in the temple. Chapter 2. <laughs> in the other Gospels, it happens his last week in Jerusalem. So John, I think, is putting that very early to separate Christianity from Judaism and show how Jesus was doing something new. And it's the Pharisees who condemned him to death. Uh, and kind of poke at the Pharisees, who were, again, still an enemy of the church around the time that John was likely written. Um, but um, chronologically speaking, it's not long. Yeah. Yes. There seems to be an urgency to this healing. Did you, did you pick that up? Yeah. There's an, yeah, there seems to be an urgency to this healing. There's an urgency to everything in the Gospel of Mark. Mark's favorite word in Greek is euthis, which means immediately. Immediately. And if you read it just in the English translation, you'll see all over the place, immediately, immediately, immediately. And I would say probably a third of the immediately's are not translated into English. They're just gone. So it says like, uh, on leaving, in verse 29, on leaving the synagogue, in the original Greek, it says he immediately left the synagogue. Okay, so even there, there's some hidden immediately's. Like he says it multiple times every chapter. It's the, probably the most repeated word or theme in the Gospel of Mark. Because Mark is trying to just get the message of the good news out there. So everything is just, here's an eyewitness account, here's an eyewitness account, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus drives out demons, Jesus did this, Jesus did that, the Pharisees didn't like it, boom, he's dead. Like that's the Gospel of Mark in a nutshell. It's the shortest, it's the most fast-paced, and it's, it doesn't have this very kind of narrative trajectory that's very well-linked and ordered like maybe the Gospel of Luke or the very poetic style of the Gospel of John. Um, so that everything is going to appear very urgent. If you sit down and read Mark in one sitting, like it's, it's going to fly by and you're going to feel that. You'll track the immediately. So it was like, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. You're like, wait a minute, you're in Jerusalem and now you're in Galilee and now you're here. Um, it, there's a lot of missing space um, because Mark just wants to get the good news of Jesus out there. So it wasn't because it was a spirit of Mark. No, 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 no. But that brings up an interesting point um, because the immediately here is not just Mark speaking, 
The one here is in verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. They immediately told him about her. They immediately told Jesus about her. Now, this isn't the immediacy of the pace of Jesus's ministry. This speaks to the immediacy of the disciples already knowing they immediately need to bring their needs to Jesus. And that's a lesson for us too as we read this. Do you immediately bring your needs to the Lord? Immediately. Or do you do what most of us do? We complain about them to our friends and family first. We whine. Why me? That's probably the first thing we say to the Lord in prayer. But whenever we have a choice to make or a decision or something confusing us, a doubt, do we bring it right to prayer? Say, Jesus, you're the source and summit of everything in my life. You are the only one who's going to give me the answer or fulfill the desires of my heart in any way that's satisfying. So I'm going to bring this to you first and foremost. Who cares what anyone else thinks? Now, it's good to seek wisdom from those who share our values, share our faith, who will direct us more toward that conversation with the Lord, bring clarity in ways maybe we don't hear his voice because maybe we're too attached to what we want to hear. But do we bring it directly to the Lord, the good and the bad? I bring up this story all the time, but it's my favorite story about Mother Teresa. Uh, the day she got her first pair of new shoes, the first thing that she did, she used to always choose the worst pair of shoes from the pile of shoes that were donated. So if you see pictures of her feet, they're crippled and mangled and they're folded. They like, she was shoving her feet into these shoes that never fit her because she always took the last pair. And one day she got a new pair of shoes and the first place she went was the Adoration Chapel to show Jesus. She was so excited to show Jesus her new, her new shoes. Immediately brought everything in her life to Jesus. Immediately. Do we do that? Or do we immediately bring it to the peanut gallery? Do we immediately bring it to the complaints of that week? To our family and friends? Oh, how's your week? Oh, you will not believe what happened. Immediately bring it to Jesus. And beyond that, what did they, the verse before that, on leaving the synagogue, he entered the house of Simon and Andrew. Do we let Jesus into our homes? Into the homes of our hearts? There's this great book that I was gifted. It's a tiny little booklet. Oh my gosh, I've given it to some of you. Someone please remember this. It's like Christ, my heart, my home or something like this. Have I given anyone this book? Do you remember? No? Okay, it's, it's like this big. But it basically uses the analogy of a house and it's about inviting Jesus into every room of your home. And as the relationship with Jesus develops, you know, like you don't invite like the cable guy who comes to install your cable, like into your bedroom to show him like your, your childhood albums. You know, it's like about like how these relationships develop over time. And initially you bring Jesus into the kind of the foyer of your life. Like, hello, Jesus, nice to meet you. And then maybe the comfortable living room, maybe the kitchen where some of the more intimate times happen, you allow him to kind of stir things up in your life, et cetera. It uses a lot of these analogies. Uh, and then eventually, um, I won't spoil the book, uh, but the final room is obviously the hardest room. Um, and, and I just, uh, Maybe I'll have copies next week or something if you're interested, but uh, I'll have at least the name of it for you next week. I have a bunch of them in my office, but it's a really great little booklet. Um, but do we welcome Jesus into our home? And not just into the foyer, but every room, to the room of our hearts, not just the places that are comfortable, not just the times where it's easy to greet Jesus on a Sunday in the four walls of a church or in the Adoration Chapel, but do we welcome Jesus into the rooms that house our addiction? our childhood trauma, our past, our worry, our sins, our shame, our guilt, the ways that maybe we're not as faithful to the teachings of the church as we like to put off that we are, the ways we feel like a hypocrite or an imposter. And if you're feeling called out a little bit, I just want to give you a newsflash. We all feel that way, so you're right at home. <laughs> but we still need to invite Jesus into those places. Immediately, they invited him in. And immediately, Jesus acts. Jesus restores mind, body, soul, everything. But we have to let him into every room for him to restore everything. Frank. Uh, I was kind of struck the last, the last gospel in this one. It seems like uh, Jesus wanted to start preaching. Mm -hmm. Like, especially in this gospel, he wanted to go to the temple. It's like he wanted to do things at his own speed. Mm -hmm. It's in the temple. I, he, I know he knows what's going to happen and all that stuff, but he's there. It's sort of like, well, there's got to be a, de there's gotta be a demon here, like right now. Mm -hmm. It's next week. <laughs> and so he, run, he goes to the demon. It's like us in a regular life. You know, we think we go out and do one thing, we do it. Boom, 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 boom. You get home that night and you're exhausted. Yeah. And so he goes to all these different things. And also the crowd, he's doing all the stuff on ceiling. Maybe just want to preach for the day. Yeah. And then it shows that, that he got up really early 
seems to me like he needed a break. I mean, he took yeah. off in the middle of nowhere to pray just to have a break. Yeah. And I'm sure, like, just like people run after, run, run up to you all the time here at church, I mean, they've got a question about this, this or that, or something like that. They can't leave the guy alone. Which I don't mind. Which I don't mind at all. <laughs> so that's just, it just seems like he was kind of insinuated yeah. that he was healing, and he did it. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of like he would have liked to have done it a little bit more at his own speed. Yeah, but Jesus definitely had a pace at which he wanted to achieve his mission, like we've talked about. You know, I love I love your depiction of Jesus. Like I love your Jesus. Your Jesus to me, Greg, seems always like this guy again. Really, does he talk to you like that when you come into the chapel? But really, again, Greg, come on. Um, I love that. I love sassy Jesus. I have a sassy Jesus too. Um, so I like that a lot. Um, but it's clear day one of his ministry, right? He's already exerted himself in such a way that he knows he needs to restore himself in prayer with his Father. And one of the reasons for the incarnation in the catechism, there's four reasons why Jesus became man. One of them is so that Jesus would be a model of holiness for us. And I will tell you this, you cannot out-disciple Jesus. And so if Jesus needed to pray after one day of ministry, you need to pray a lot. <laughs> we need to pray all the time. If Jesus needed to do it, we need to do it. If he needed to go away to a deserted place early in the morning to restore, to connect with his father, we need to do that. And we know that he thinks we need to do that because we never would have known what he was doing had he not told someone later on to write this down. Had he not told Simon Peter when Simon Peter came with a totally different idea, by the way. Jesus, everybody's looking for you. He sounds very like kind of ticked off at Jesus. Like, you're the Messiah. What are you doing? And Jesus is like, let's go somewhere else. Like, totally not concerned with Peter's plan or Peter's pace. He has his pace, just like he said. And people will come to him and they'll clamor for him. And what will he do? He'll go away to a deserted place. Mark is only 16 chapters. Eight times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus goes to a deserted place to pray. Constantly being a model for his disciples and a model for us. If I need this, you need this. I literally am the second person of the Trinity. And I need time for me. You need time to connect with the Lord daily, or you cannot possibly do what the Lord is calling you to do. It'd be very easy for Jesus to just model this kind of perfect life, but he came as a real human being. And real human beings, they need sleep, they need rest, they need to pray, they need to be faithful to the things that God has entrusted to them in order to live a fulfilling life. And so he comes to embody that example perfectly so that we will never forget that we cannot outdo Jesus and act like we can make it through this life by praying once a week. Absolutely not. How often are you praying? How often are we welcoming Jesus into our homes, into those hidden rooms of our hearts and our lives that might be scary for us to open the door, those places when company comes over and we just shove everything into the closet and close the door and lock it? We have spiritual rooms like that that decay and rot and begin to stink. And Jesus comes into our house and we let him into all these rooms. And he says, hey, what's in there? Nothing, don't worry about that, Jesus. I wanna go in there. I'm spoiling the end of that book for you a little bit, but that's the room we need to invite Jesus into. And we do it through following his example, daily prayer, immediately bringing things to Jesus, not to complaints, not to conversations that aren't going to get anywhere but gossip and anger, but to the Lord first and foremost, the good and the bad, praising him and thanking him for the good, even a new pair of shoes, and coming to him in the doubt and the uncertainty, trusting that he's already at work. He already knows how this is going to be for our greater good. To immediately tell the Lord what you need. The final thing I want to end with, there's a phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard this before? Wrong. Absolutely wrong. God helps those who cannot help themselves. These people come before the Lord. They cannot heal themselves. They cannot drive the demons out from their life. And so much of the behavior behind keeping that door in our heart locked is about putting on this persona like, I can do this on my own. 
I'm fine. I don't need help. I don't need advice. I don't need anyone to be there for me. I can't tell you how many times in ministry people bring things to our attention. People reach out. We offer prayers. If you need anything, please let us know. Can we do this? Can we do that? And people are like, no, I'm fine. And I just want to, you are not fine. <laughs> like, I just want to shout back via email or however I'm talking. You are not. Let us help you. Let the Lord come to you through friendship, through vulnerability, through admitting that you do not have it all together. It's okay because none of us do. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And if we do not admit that we need help, we're telling Jesus that we do not need him. We say, Jesus, I've already saved myself. I've got this covered. It's all in this closet that I've locked. I've got it handled. Don't look in there. And I'll just appear perfect and like my life is all together. And that is absolutely a lie that the devil wants you to live by. Because that stinking, decaying room is his way in. So you have to ask yourself, not do I leave that door closed and locked, is who do you want in there? Because someone's going to get in there eventually. Jesus or the enemy. You get to choose. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We praise you, God. We thank you for the gift of this night, this study. And a beautiful reminder that you come to heal us completely, mind, body, and soul. That you come to restore us, to transform us, to make us whole. And anything, Lord, in our lives that's standing in the way of that, give us the courage to immediately bring that to you. To be willing to admit that we need help, that we are struggling, that we are weak, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. To not insult the cross by looking at you and saying that we don't need it. But to welcome it by being open and honest about our suffering and our need for you, Jesus. Heal us. Heal our minds, our bodies, and our souls. Reveal to us your light, your life, and your love. We pray that all these things would happen through the power of your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in each one of our lives, today and every day. We pray all these things in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.